So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We um, just acknowledge these things. We do pray for all the folks at Horizon and for Bill and Vi um, uh, as you um, have transitions in life for all of us, Lord. Uh, we, we thank you for their faithfulness, and uh, we pray that you bless them today, encourage them and, uh, and their family. And uh, Lord, we do pray for our time now in your word that you would guide us and lead us and have your way with us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2. I would ask, how do you like Ezekiel so far? But we've only been in it for one week, so... I see that in four or five months. So the scene is a prison camp in Babylon around 592 B.C. The nation of Judah has not been fully conquered yet. They're still uh, hoping that, this is the, that this, these first couple of skirmishes with Babylon are temporary setbacks, despite what Jeremiah has been telling them for decades, uh, that, no, the Babylonians are going to come and... Uh, and basically wipe out uh, Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem. Uh, so Ezekiel finds himself amongst the captives there in Babylon in a prison camp um, about 50 miles south of, um, of the city of Babylon. He's approaching his 30th birthday. And as we talked about last week, I'm just reviewing. Um, he's approaching his 30th birthday, which means something for him because he's in the lineage of the priests. He's a descendant of Aaron. And a priest would have been a pretty good gig uh, for, uh, for Ezekiel. And he was probably looking forward to that. And, you know, he would have had a, you know, would have had a good benefit package and all of that sort of thing. Been a secure position, lots of respect, got to wear the cool robe, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, and now instead, he's a refugee prisoner in Babylon. And the point is, he's got lots of reason to whine. But we don't see him whining. And so we read in chapter 1 that he saw, quote, visions of God. We saw that in verse 1. And he describes this whole dramatic thing, the scene uh, of visions of God. And that culminates in the end, uh, it says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And as we mentioned last week, you know, he used this word likeness and, you know, lots of kind of words because the glory of the Lord is indescribable, right? And um, Chris Tomlin taught us that. Right? So you don't think I'm very musically savvy, but I slid one in on you there. Uh, but anyway, um, should have just let it go, shouldn't I? Yeah. So anyway, so Ezekiel in chapter 1, he kind of tries to describe uh, this sort of divine presence, and, and uh, it's really a great description that he gave us, but really... Um, 
he culminates, it culminates in the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And if you ever see the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, what should you do? You should do exactly what Ezekiel did. You should do exactly what everybody throughout the scripture does when they are faced with something like this. As so and when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. Now he's ready to hear from the Lord. My mind goes back to Job, you know, in, in, I forget what chapter it was in Job, you know, Job goes through this whole thing, Job goes through a lot of things, but anyway, one of the things that Job goes through, he's like, you know, if I ever had a chance to talk to God, I'm going to give him peace of my mind, and I'm going to tell him, you know, what about injustice in the world, and, and I'm going to talk to him about this, and I'm going to get my questions answered. You know, and then at the end of the book of Job, as you know, God shows up, God speaks to Job. God's like, hey, by the way, where were you at when, you know, I created the universe? And, and by the way, you know, and, and God's a little bit sarcastic with Job, which I appreciate. Um, and, and, and then at the end, God says, so Job, what, what were you going to tell me? And Job's like, never mind, <laughs> right? And so often we have this attitude sometimes like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God this, right? You ever heard people say that? Maybe you said that. I've said that. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. I don't think we will. I think when we get to heaven, we see heaven for what it is. We see however that works, you know. The Bible says we'll see him as he is. Uh, however that works, we'll be like, boom, going down. And so that's what Ezekiel did. And it's a great uh, position to be in. And, uh, you know, the reality is, you know, we don't see things like this every day, and so we tend not to fall on our face, and we tend to um, be a little self-sufficient. You know, we got a little God influence, we got a little self-sufficiency, and the truth is that God isn't really interested in self-sufficient human beings. We might think we're capable, we might be fairly impressed with ourselves, but God is not really interested in using self-sufficient people. And so he likes to use people that are awed by his presence, and that's what he's doing here with Ezekiel. And so as we think about this going forward, kind of put yourself in the, in the, in the mindset or in the, maybe put yourself in Ezekiel's place a little bit. Because the reality is, who amongst us, it's a quiz from Thessalonians we talked about a few weeks ago, who amongst us are ministers? All of us. Which of us are full-time ministers? Right? There's no such thing as a part-time minister. We use that term full-time ministry, which is a term that I hate. See, you could, you, could, you could do this, right? We could just like have fill in the blanks, right? The word full-time ministry is a horrible term because we're all full-time ministers. The fact that I get a paycheck from somewhere else that's not necessarily this church means nothing, right? The fact that you might get a paycheck from a ministry doesn't make you any more of a full-time minister than, a, than any other full-time minister that happens to do their ministry in a secular position, right? Now, let's, the, the counter-argument of that is, when you go to your secular thing, don't forget that you're there as a minister. You're not there as a guy that's just doing his time. I remember years ago, I was, 
I think I was in college, uh, working a summer job as a landscaper, landscape crew at an uh, apartment complex. And I'll never, it's just, you know, you ever in life, you know, as, maybe as a kid or whatever, these, these things just kind of stick in your head. And I remember some, we were talking and the, these other guys that were on the maintenance crew there, they were like, there was some job that needed to get done. The guy's like, I got eight hours to get this job done. I'm just doing my time. And I'm like, even as a young kid, I'm like, God bless you. Right? But we're all ministers no matter where we go. So these principles that apply to Ezekiel apply to us. And so that's the point for us. So he goes on. Chapter 2, verse 1. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me. Now, this is a great, great setup. So first of all, the Son of Man is a phrase you'll see throughout the book of Ezekiel. Uh, it's mentioned 93 times. Uh, and most commentators say it's really to, it's God's way of emphasizing that Ezekiel is a man. Ezekiel is mortal. Ezekiel is going to have some pretty supernatural experiences, but Ezekiel is a human being, just like us. Just like us. James tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like us, right? So we're all humans, and Ezekiel is human. Son of man, interestingly, is used to describe Jesus 80, time, 80 times in the Gospels. Now, you know, Jesus was fully God and fully man in ways that we don't fully understand. But, um, you know, so it's a different context, but likely reflects the humanity that Jesus took on. So anyway, God calls Ezekiel son of man. Then God tells Ezekiel to stand, but notice that he doesn't tell Ezekiel to stand in his own strength. He says, then the spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet. The spirit entered me. So he doesn't stand on his own feet, his own strength. He stands when the spirit enters him and sets him on his feet. We must be careful as ministers now because we all are ministers. We're all full-time ministers. We must be careful not to stand on our own strength. So, as we read last week in chapter 1, Ezekiel has this amazing experience uh, of the appearance of God. Ezekiel has a humble response. Now God is going to call him. God's empowering him by his spirit. Now Ezekiel is ready. And he said, I heard him who spoke to me. Ezekiel is set up, right? There is preparation that goes into doing ministry, doing any kind of work for the Lord. And so uh, Ezekiel is set up. He's ready to go because he's had all, these, uh, all this sort of prep work. But only after all of this is he ready. Then he goes on. He says, And he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And so God is sending Ezekiel essentially to be a missionary, right? But where's he a missionary to? His own people, right? And I like that too. We're all missionaries, right? Some, some are called to foreign missions. Some are called to neighborhood missions. But we're all missionaries. What kind of missionaries are we? What time? Full time, that's right. So Ezekiel is going to be a missionary to his people, to a rebellious nation. 
That word rebellious nation uh, in the Hebrew is really a word that was reserved for the Gentiles. And you recall the Jews hated the Gentiles because they were so uh, carnal. They were so worldly. They were so evil. And the Jews had this sort of um, basically pompous religious arrogance about them because we're God's chosen people. It doesn't matter that we, you know, adopt all the pagan practices and have a bazillion gods. We're still God's chosen people. And so they had this sort of pompous pride. And God is sort of undoing that with a little bit of a play on words by calling them a rebellious people. And just notice in these next few verses how many times we read the word rebellious. And it's the word that was used for the Gentile people. You're no better than the Gentiles is what, is what God is telling his people. Now, we might think we're Christians. We grew up in church, right? But we're all sinners, and we all are saved by grace, and we all need the goodness of God in our lives. So it says, he says, they and their fathers have transgressed. I'm sending you to these people. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And so, um, you know, the word transgression is distinct from the word sin. Sin means missing the mark. It means like, eh, I messed up. Transgression is, I know it's wrong, and I'm going to do it anyway, and I don't care. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. That's transgression. That's the attitude that these people had. And so God is just painting this picture and emphasizing this idea to, um, to Ezekiel that these are, these are tough people. This is their heritage. This is, this is who they are. This is their identity. So they're going to be a tough crowd, right? Consider our desires for ministry, right? When you go as a minister, wherever, let's say where I, wherever you go as a minister, what do you want? What, what do you hope for as a minister? You hope for somebody that will be like so receptive and appreciative, and they're going to say, oh, man, thanks for sharing that with me. And then they'll say something like, you're what? You're brilliant. You're awesome. You're just what I needed at just the right time. You rescued me. You're a minister. Right? And what do we say? Eh, it was nothing. Right? We kind of shove it, shove it off. Right? But at the end of the day, as ministers, we all want respect. We all want to be honored. I mean, honestly, this is a tra for people that are in sort of, uh, you know, churchy-type ministry. I mean, I've known lots of pastors over the years, right? And it, it's, it's, it, we're, all, we're all vulnerable to it. Uh, we all have this desire to be respected, for people to say we're awesome, right? It's a trap. So if you guys would all just say it once, I'd get over it right? So it's a trap. But these people are going to be difficult. These people are going to be very difficult. So it goes on, verse 4. For they are impudent. I like that word. They're impudent and stubborn children. I'm sending you to them, and, they, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, Yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. This is an important concept. He's going to repeat this many times during these chapters. The idea is Ezekiel's job is to deliver God's message. 
Ezekiel's job is not to save these people. Now, I grew up in a church that was very responsibility-oriented. We're going to talk about this a little more as we go. And in the, in the church culture I grew up in, we would say, well, people would say things like, I led so-and-so to the Lord. Right? Now, is that a sinful term? Not really. Right? That's just, you know you're dealing with a responsibility-oriented person. Right? But the reality is, and those people understand this idea, but it's not like second nature to them. The idea is, sometimes if we think the responsibility is ours, we think the results are ours, right? Because we want that person to be receptive. We want that person to get saved. Is it a good thing to want people to get saved? When we go and minister to people, do we want them to get saved? If they're already saved, do we want them to get discipled and grow further in the Lord? Yeah, all that stuff, right? But do we cause that? Get this. Do we cause that? Because as ministers, we sometimes like to think that we do. What did Paul tell the Corinthians? You know, I, I forget the order. One guy waters, one guy plants. Or one guy plants, one guy waters. But God causes the growth, right? And in that context... Paul's telling the people, what did he say? You guys are carnal because you haven't got this idea. One person waters or plants. One person plants. One person waters. God causes the growth. He's telling Ezekiel, your job is to deliver the message. Whether they refuse or accept it, by the way, I know they're going to refuse it, which might make you say, so why does God bother? It's because of his love and his grace and his mercy, and he loves to give us a chance, even though somehow... In his brain, that's way beyond ours. He knows that some will refuse it. Even at that, he says, they're going to know that a prophet has been among them. It's a great picture. We're not called to be successful. We're not called to be responsible for the results. We're called to be faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. We are a steward of the gospel as ministers. We're stewards of this life. You know, we've got, uh, some of you know, if you listen to me talk very long, I'm a little bit obsessed with, like, I don't know, life and death. Maybe it's because I see uh, sick people, you know, throughout the week. But I'm a little bit obsessed with life and death and longevity. Maybe it's because I'm older than I was a year ago, right? Um, but just this idea, you know, like life and death and how, do, how does that work and all that. But I realize I'm a steward of really so many things. I'm a steward of this human body. So I need to deal with it like it's a stewardship. I'm a steward of a certain amount of resources. I needed to deal with that like, a, like it's a stewardship. But ultimately... And most importantly, I'm a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I need to deal with that faithfully. But if I worry about trying to deal with that like I'm successful at it, I'll drive myself crazy. 
And honestly, usually that's not sustainable. Usually it's not sustainable. Again, as I get older, man, I know people that I've been involved with at church, in churches and in Christian circles over the years, and, and uh, uh, frankly, I've seen a lot of them just go by the wayside, right? And so we want to we be faithful stewards to the end, period. And so he's telling Ezekiel, you just be faithful. You just, do your, you just do your job. It's going to be hard. They're going to be a hard crowd. They're probably not going to say, you're awesome, thanks for blessing us. They're going to say, they're impudent. Let's just put it that way. They're impudent. But you know what? They're going to know that a prophet has been around. Your job is to say, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. You know what's cool? As Christians... We have the authority to say, thus says the Lord God. If we're speaking from the word of God. So we have the authority to say, thus says the Lord God, when we read the word. So it would behoove us to learn the word, to know the word, to make the word be a part of who we are. He goes on, he says, verse 6, And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. And so God is aware that, of our human nature. God's aware that we're emotional people. God is aware that it's possible to be afraid as a human being. It's possible to be afraid as a minister, and God is acknowledging that for Ezekiel. But he says, he says don't be afraid. Somewhere, uh, Tracy was telling me, she read in that uh, I'm That Girl book, right? Y'all read that I'm That Girl book? Boys, have you read that I'm That Girl book? Yeah. Uh, that it's mentioned that 365 times, I didn't count, so bear with me. 365 times in the Bible, God says, don't be afraid or fear not. Why do you think he would say that? Because he thinks we might tend to be that way. Why does he tell Ezekiel, don't be afraid? Hey, by the way, I know there's going to be scorpions and briars, and these guys are, these guys are ugly. But don't be afraid. Why, why might God say that? Because he knows that there's, that there's a tendency for him to be afraid. And by the way, one of the things that God is going to use to deal with that is not just his words, don't be afraid. By the way, God showed Ezekiel that vision. God has reminded him of who he is. God's reminded us of who he is. God stood Ezekiel up on his feet by the Holy Spirit. God fills us with his Holy Spirit. And so we cannot be afraid and, and live accordingly. Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. He knows that there's going to be a temptation to be fearful. But he tells us not to be. Verse 7. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. Again, this is the concept. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Ezekiel's job is to speak his word, speak God's words, not his own opinions. And whether they receive or not is not Ezekiel's business. His job is to faithfully preach the word. 
And then he goes on, he does something pretty curious. He says, open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now, when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. So this would appear to be, you know, the word, a scroll, handed to Ezekiel by God. Do we have a, a scroll handed to us by God? Yeah, for sure we do. We call it the Word of God. And so Ezekiel's handed a scroll. Interestingly, it's written on both sides. Usually they would have just written on one side. And it contains lamentations and mourning and woe. Does God warn his people? Yeah, God warns his people. And would these people needed to be, need to be warned? Yes. Do these people, these people that are impudent, impudent and stubborn and rebellious and rebellious and rebellious and rebellious, I think it's mentioned five times here, a rebellious house, do they need like a prophet that's going to come and say, hey man, you're okay. Whatever works for you. No. They need somebody that's going to give them the lamentations and mourning and woe because God is a just God and his reality is that that's what they need. So God tells Ezekiel to eat this thing, which is kind of interesting. He goes on in chapter 3. He says, moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Now commentators disagree over whether or not Ezekiel actually ate the scroll, right? And commentators that I respect, some say that he did. Some say it was just a figurative thing, right? I go back to, in my brain, why would we say it must be a figurative thing? Because it's kind of weird to eat a scroll, right? Right? You, anybody eat paper? No, it's kind of weird, right? It's kind of weird. Now, we're going to read through the rest of Ezekiel. Does the fact that it's kind of weird get in the way of other things that God's going to do in Ezekiel's life? No. So personally, the only reason I can think of to say he didn't really eat it, it was just a figurative thing, was because I might say, that's kind of weird, right? But kind of weird is sometimes how God rolls, and especially in Ezekiel's life. So I'm going to say he ate it. You can say whatever you want, but I'm going to say he ate it. Here's the point. Here's the real point. The real point is not whether he literally ate it or not. The real point is that we must internalize the Word of God. It must become who we are. Right? The Word of God is not like an encyclopedia book, though it's got lots of facts. It's not like a history book, though it's got lots of history. It's not like a good psychology book, though it's got the best psychology going because I've read some of the other stuff this is clearly the best psychology going it's not really a medical textbook but the older I get and the more I learn about medicine as I study longevity this is an amazing book this is an amazing book but even beyond all of that this book needs to become who I am and when I eat something, 
Sorry, I'm going off on my physical world. Is that all right? You know, when I was younger, I'm trying to look around and see your age, I started, no. <laughs> you know, when I was, no. When I was younger, I could eat whatever, you know, I could eat three dozen donuts and go play basketball. Right? Right? If I wanted to. Now, and I kind of thank God for this, I eat a bite of a donut. Do you guys do this? I feel like my joints hurt. How does that work if I can eat a donut and it goes into my stomach and my joints hurt? My muscles ache. I'm like, I mean, I'm stiff enough already, but I'm like, yeah, I'll play basketball. Right? Like the Tin Man, right? One donut. I'm the Tin Man because it becomes a part of me. You get this? Right? Why was it such a big deal when Jesus, you've heard me talk about this before, why is it such a big deal when Jesus dipped his bread and shared it with Judas. Because in the ancient world, there was something mystical about people eating together. Right? Because the bread that goes into Judas' stomach becomes a part of who he is. It becomes a part of his physiologic makeup. And the bread that goes into Jesus' stomach becomes a part of his physiologic makeup. And the bread was the same. And it's like they become like intertwined, right? And so that was a big deal in the ancient mindset. What about us? Do we, do we eat the Word of God so much that it becomes a part of us, or do we read it like it's a history book, like some facts and figures, like I know I'm supposed to read that thing, but, you know, if I just show up and listen for an hour... I'll get a dose of it. Right? Jesus said what? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus said when he was tempted, it is written. Then Jesus said when he was tempted again, it is written. And then when Jesus said when he was, when he was tempted again, it is written. It came out of his mouth because it was in him. And so Ezekiel... He's had this experience of seeing the Lord. He's had the Holy Spirit lift him up and sort of take away his self-sufficiency. He's been told what his job is. He's been reminded that his job is just to be faithful and not to worry about the results. And now he's been given this scroll of lamentations and mourning and woe, and it needs to be a part of him. And he needs to consume it. And when he does, by the way, even though it's lamentations and mourning and woe, it's in my mouth like honey and sweetness, he said. That's cool. The Word of God is sweetness to us. Even the hard parts. Even the hard parts. And then he said to me, 
Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my, speak with my words to them. For you're not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. So again, there's a call to foreign missions. There's a call to domestic missions. If you feel, if you feel like the Lord has called you to domestic missions, which if we're here and we live here, we're called to domestic missions. Uh, then, you know, there's a biblical uh, place for that. And so God is saying that to, uh, to Ezekiel here. This is his job. He's called to domestic missions. And so uh, there's a role for both, as the Lord would direct. But the house of Israel will not listen to you, because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. So, uh, again, God's being emphatic here. He's sending Ezekiel knowing that they won't listen. And again, why would he do that? That's God's business. God's that, that's God's business. He wants them to have an opportunity to repent, but Ezekiel's job is to be faithful. Verse 8, Behold, I've made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I've made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You may get the idea that they are a rebellious house. They're a rebellious house. And God says, I like this, I've made your, I've made your face strong, I've made your forehead strong, like adamant stone, harder than flint, I've made your forehead. So don't be afraid of them. His forehead will be hard, but not his heart. I like that picture, right? In our day, as we engage, frankly, what appears to be an increasingly rebellious house of our culture, as we engage that culture, there's, there's this balance of tenderness. Have you noticed this? We need to be and frankly, only the Holy Spirit can do this, because I've personally been all over the map on this one. We need to have this conviction. We need to know what we believe, and we need to know why we believe it, and we need to stand on the Word of God, and we need to stand like there's no moving us. And we need to be determined, and all of that, and yet somehow gracious. Right? It's like soft-hearted, but hard forehead. Right? Does that make sense? My mother sometimes used to call me hard-headed. Right? So, there you go. Just like Ezekiel. Right? Hard forehead, soft heart. Somehow this balance, and again, I'm continually asking the Lord to, to do that in my life. And, and by the way, we all have different personalities. So this plays out different with, with different ones of us. And that's okay. That's okay. But there's this balance of firm conviction, soft heart. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, receive into your heart, into your heart, all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears 
and go, get, the, get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God. Again, whether they hear or whether they refuse. So this word whether is being used all the time in this, this chapter too. So again, he needs to internalize the word of God, sort of eat the word of God, if you will, receive it into his heart, and then declare the word of God to, to the people. And really, it's no more complicated than that. What do we do? We receive the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, make it a part of who we are, and we deliver it to people. Just like Paul said, you know, they're uh, talking about um, the Lord's Supper. That which I received, I deliver to you. We receive the word of God, we deliver it to one another for whatever uh, God's purpose is for that. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice, Blessed is the glory of the Lord from this place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another, and the noise of the wheels beside them. Those are the things we read about last week. And a great thunderous noise. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my, my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to the captives of, at Tel Abib, who dwelt by the river Chibar, and I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them seven days. And so the scene here is the Holy Spirit lifts him up, takes him to the captive. Somehow in chapter one, uh, he says he's by the captives. So the timing, we don't know if he like picked up and then moved to the same spot or a different spot, doesn't really matter. But anyway, uh, the Holy Spirit lifts him up and takes him to where he's going to be. You know, the interesting thing about ministry, I'm just talking to the full-time ministers now. The interesting thing about ministry is that God has a way of taking you where you need to be. Have you ever found yourself, like, just doing your normal whatever it is, and all of a sudden, you're engaged in a conversation that you know was divinely appointed? It's... it's it, it's a thrill, frankly. And if we are aware and if we are led by the Spirit, we'll see those things happen. We'll experience those things in our lives. No matter how mundane or routine we think our life might be, and we all tend to think that, by the way. So if you think, well, that applies for you, but not for me. I just live a normal mundane life. We all do in our own sort of way, right? But the Holy Spirit lifts us up and takes us where we need to be. And so we don't need to strive to be any place that we're not. We, <clears throat> as long as we're led by the Spirit, we let him take us where he wants us to be. And so, you know, he does that. He does that with Ezekiel. Even though the ministry will be difficult and all of that, so he's now experienced the presence of God. He's seen the presence of God. He's empowered by the Spirit of God. He's consumed the Word of God. He's been placed where God wants him. He's ready. Now it came to pass at the end of the seven days that the Word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. So, the principle of the watchman. 
you know, the watchman, if you think about like, I don't know, probably the modern day context is these old fire towers. You ever seen a fire tower? When I was a kid, there was a, we had a farm down um, in Owen County and, and around that area there was, a, there was a fire tower. And we would go and we'd climb up that fire tower, which was a long way up, right? And you go up and all it is is like this just sort of lookout point. And the people, you know, back in the day, they would look out over the forest. They say, yep, there's a fire over there, right? And they'd sound the alarms and send, send that, right? But, you know, in Ezekiel's day, God uses the term watchman. I like this. The watchman would stand up. Um, uh, you may recall, you know, like when David is back in the temple. They're at the beginning of Second Samuel. David's back in the temple, and, and the watchman's up on the tower, or on the top of the, wherever, on top of the, the city wall. And, or David's not in the temple, anyways. You know what I mean. He's back in Jerusalem. And uh, the watchman looks up and says, yep, there's a messenger coming. He's going to bring us news about the, about the battle. Or, you know, they'd stand up on the, on the city wall, and the watchman would watch out for danger, watch out for the enemies to come. And so the idea here is Ezekiel is a watchman to his people. He's going to stand up and he's going to see lamentations and mourning and woe. He's seeing what the Word of God says and he's going to say to the people, by the way, you need to repent. And if the people repent, awesome. If they don't repent, that's on them. Right? But if God's judgment is coming and Ezekiel doesn't say anything, like his job was to warn the people and they in fact are consumed in their sin with no warning to repent, then they still are somehow accountable for their sin, right? Everybody's accountable for his own relationship with the Lord. But in some sort of way... Ezekiel is also responsible. We don't fully understand it, but Ezekiel is responsible for his part. And that's the point God is making. We are all watchmen in whatever place God places us. You know, sometimes we're called to warn people of danger coming. Is that always pleasant? No. But we're called to warn people. And here's what I've learned sometimes the hard way. Sometimes you have to warn people. Again, it's this idea of getting in your head that we're called to be faithful, not successful. I've had many experiences in my life where I've had to learn how to warn somebody and then it's theirs. Does that make sense? So often, I've tried to warn them. They didn't take the warning. I thought it was my responsibility. I warned him louder. Next thing you know, what am I in? I'm in a confrontation myself. My job was just to be faithful. And I took on more than what my job was called by the Lord to be. And so, Ezekiel's a watchman. It's a great picture for us. Again, verse 20. When a righteous man turns from his righteousness and, com and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you did not give him warning. 
He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that, he, that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you also will have delivered your soul. So this is a difficult one for us. So you've heard me say this before, I'm going to say it again. So if you want, you can say, there he goes again. All right, and I'll be okay with that. There's these two concepts in the scripture. There's the responsibility of man, and there's the sovereignty of God. Right? The responsibility of man is clearly in the scripture. And frankly, this is probably the most, one of the most responsibility passages in the entire Bible. And that is... Man is responsible for his actions. Is that a biblical truth? Yeah, I just read it. Ezekiel is told here by God, if a man is righteous, he's walking with the Lord, and he decides to walk away, it says his righteousness, all the righteousness which he has done, will not even be remembered. That's kind of scary. There is a principle of sowing and reaping. There is a principle that we are told to repent of our sins. That's a decision that we make. That's an action that we, that we take. That affects how we live. It affects the decisions that we make day by day. There's another principle of God's sovereignty. God sustains us. God is the author and the finisher of our faith, Hebrews tells us. Philippians tells us that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I told you just earlier, do, do men save us or does God save us? What's the answer? God saves us. And the idea of a, in a sovereignty mindset is, if God saves us, is God going to let us go? Is God big enough to save us and keep us? Yeah, I believe he is. How do those two things fit together? I'm not, I'm not sure I understand. I'm not sure we're supposed to understand. Here's how it plays out. You've heard me say this before. All of us really, in a sense, in terms of our own theology, whether we think through it or not, are somewhere on, like, I think a spectrum between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And if you talk to somebody long enough, you'll say, I think you're a little more of a sovereignty person than I am, or I think you're a little more of a responsibility person than I am. And that's okay. Here's my point. We should all recognize that these are both biblical truths. The, really, the error is when we go off the, off the graph this way or off the graph this way. But the reality is, many of us are, I mean, nobody's at just that one perfect spot on that spectrum. I, because I don't think there is one perfect spot on that spectrum. And so often, I think in the body of Christ, we really need to get our heads around understanding that I am who I am. By the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, He's led me this way. He's, you know, He's wired me this way. I need to be obedient to Him, but this is who I am. And if you're like a little more of a sovereignty person, that's okay. That's okay. I've been thinking about just last few days even again, uh, and uh, I've mentioned this before, not to steal thunder from anybody who might be talking about the minor prophets on Wednesday nights, but... Haggai and Zechariah were both contemporaries. They both preached to uh, these captives in Babylon. Or, I'm sorry, the, the refugees after they, after they returned and resettled the land after the 70 years. 
Haggai and Zechariah were both contemporaries. If you read Haggai, if you read Zechariah, I always think of it like this. I hope I can put it in modern terms without offending anybody. Which I won't because you think I'm awesome. So if Zechariah went to a church today, I think he'd go to a charismatic type church. You read it for yourself. He's got some pretty cool visions and all kinds of stuff. I think he'd go to a kind of a charismatic church. If Haggai went to a church today, I think he'd go to a pretty mainline, probably Baptist, Bible teaching, straight up, probably tame in style church. Probably a lot of exhortation kind of a church, right? God gives them both at the same time to the same group of people, and they're fundamentally different people. And you never hear Haggai say Zechariah was too, too wild. And you never hear Zechariah say Haggai wasn't filled with the Spirit. Right? You see these guys just working together. Maybe we should see more of that. Maybe we shouldn't try to pigeonhole somebody into a, into a label, but just accept who they are, right? So again, back to the spectrum. So that's where we're at. That's the whole point of the spectrum of responsibility and sovereignty. So back to the responsibility. You know, if, if somebody if somebody's really struggling, like, you know, they're trying to, you know, they stumble and they really want to know the Lord and they really want to grow in the Lord, then I'm not going to tell that person, hey, by the way, you know, Ezekiel says, if you walk away, Too bad, so sad for you. Am I going to tell that person that? No. Would I do that? No. I'm going to tell that person, you know what? He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Right? God is the author. Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the very image of his son. That's what he's done in you. You who desire to grow in him. You who desire to be his child. Right? If someone's over here, now if you may notice, if you've ever like come to me with a challenge or whatever, those are the verses I'm going to quote to you. Right? If you're over here and you're like, I'm walking away from the Lord. We'll see what happens with that. Am I going to say, congratulations, you're awesome. No, I'm going to open up Ezekiel chapter 3. <laughs> and I'm going to read, you know what? Do what you want, but my Bible says there's a guy that God won't remember his righteousness. And I don't know what to do with that, honestly. But it's there, and it's real. And so these are the sort of the two ends of the spectrum, if you will. So to this, to this person, just, just don't be the person that says, I'm walking away. And in reality, as it plays out in our lives, it really shouldn't matter, right? What are we doing? We're trying to put one foot in front of the other as faithfully as we can. What are we doing? We're trusting the goodness of God to carry us there, right? 
It's really, as it plays out in our lives, if we're seeking the Lord, it's really a beautiful, a beautiful sort of matchup of the attributes of God uh, on our behalf. So, but if you ever, if you are a responsibility person and you like responsibility verses, there you go. Ezekiel chapter 3. And then, the hand of the Lord was upon me there, verse 22. And he said to me, Arise, go out into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. So I rose and went out into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory which I saw by the river Chebar. And I, what did, I, what did he do again? I fell on my face. And then what happened again? The Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself inside your house, and you, O son of man, surely they will put ropes on you and will bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. I'll make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and not, one to rebuke, and not be one to rebuke them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. He who hears, let him hear. He who refuses, let them refuse, for they are what? A rebellious house. Wouldn't it be awesome if the only word that came out of our, like if God like, maybe it wouldn't be awesome. <laughs> if God like made our tongue stick to the roof of our mouth until he was ready to say something. Every time I give you my own opinion. Uh, must have been my opinion, right? So God's doing this in Ezekiel. But again, Notice this idea. God decides when Ezekiel's going to speak. God decides what he's going to speak. God decides where he's going to speak and to whom he's going to speak. God, desire, God decides what Ezekiel's going to go through. And God's going to let Ezekiel go through hard things. Does God let us go through hard things? Yes. It's not necessarily for our punishment. It's, and sometimes we don't even understand it, right? God didn't give Job all the explanation as to why he went through what he went through, but God knew. And so sometimes we go through things and only God knows. But our job is to be faithful. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. So we're all ministers. Sometimes ministry is difficult. Sometimes ministry can be scary. Our job is not to save people. Our job is to be a watchman and warn people, encourage people, speak to people as God directs, go where God leads, go in the power of the Holy Spirit, recognizing this chapter 1 that the glory of God is amazing right? Ezekiel has that history of remembering the glory of God that's amazing. We have the history of remembering that Jesus has saved us, and we have all the history of what he's done for us, and our history written, a history in our lives, personally, as we see him work in our lives. And our job is to just faithfully consume him, consume his word, and deliver it to whoever will listen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you are the author and the finisher of our faith. We thank you that you who began a good work in us will complete it. 
We thank you that you're the same yesterday and today and forever. We thank you that though we sometimes may feel that we are trying to minister to a rebellious house or a rebellious nation or a rebellious workplace, Lord, you know what you're doing. You have us in this place for such a time as this to accomplish what you want to accomplish in us and through us. And so, Lord, help us to be people who consume your word so much that it becomes a part of who we are. It becomes our identity, that we are your children, that we are full of your word, that your word affects everything that we think and everything that we do. and that we minister accordingly. So, Lord, have your way with us. Guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.